Well, our second reading is from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences, for offences must come. But woe to that man by whom the offence comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses Every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, 
Let him be to you like a heathen or a Gentile and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servants, his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Um, this morning I want to speak to you briefly about uh, the practice of love, the practice of the love of Christ or the practice of the love of God. Let me start by saying this. Uh, the Bible uh, speaks about the church as a body. 
And because it is a body, uh, it speaks of Christ as the head. So we, have, we are a body with Christ the head. It also speaks about us as a kingdom. And we have a king. It speaks about us as a family. And we have a father. Uh, Paul writes this, doesn't he, in Ephesians. He speaks about us as being one family with one father, one heavenly father. And when you think, if you start by thinking about what the church is, if you like, as a body with Christ as the head, as a family with God as the father, these things are telling you that the church uh, has a spiritual connection. Uh, There is a spiritual joining together in the church. Now, I know that the church uh, has uh, a mixture. Often there are those within the church who are not uh, born again, who are not believers. But setting that aside for a moment, the church is a spiritual body and it is connected to its head and the members also are connected. And so we have to begin by thinking about what we are. So we as a church are connected particularly to our God and to our head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the connection. And once we've made that step in our thinking that we are connected to God, we are joined to him, we we then realize that the character of God is very important for us. Uh, In one place or another, the Bible speaks to us about the character of our God. In the passage that we just read from 1 John, chapter 4, in verse 8, there is a statement about the character of our God. It says, what does it say? God is love. God is love. And uh, in other places, there are some wonderful statements about the character of our God. I think of Psalm 11, I think it's the last verse, where it says, The righteous Lord loves righteousness. That is a statement about the character of our God. In another place, I am holy, says God. And uh, But this morning I want to come back to that statement in 1 John chapter 4, where it says, God is love. And if you remember that short reading, uh, you'll remember, first of all, that the reading goes on to speak to us about the way in which the love of God has been manifested to us. Doesn't it? It says, in this the love of God has been manifested to us, that he sent his only begotten son. And it goes on to speak about him being made the propitiation for our sins. And it, 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 as it were, it puts, can I put it like this? It puts flesh on the concept. It, it brings in detail. It's, it's asking us, John is asking us to stop and reflect upon the love of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying, go to Bethlehem and see him taking flesh. Go to Calvary and see him dying for the sins of his people. The love of God has been manifested to us in Christ and especially at Calvary. At Golgotha, the propitiation for our sins. The one who bore 
the wrath that was due, the wrath of God that was due uh, for our sins, that's love. John even says it's not that we love God, it's that he loved us and he's done this uh, for us. So uh, John is, as it were, in very brief terms, reminding us and making us, asking us to think about God, his own character, and how we have received his love. But in that same passage, he goes on and he says, Beloved, let us love one another. So you see what he's saying. He's saying, let the character of your God become your character. That's what he's doing. He's making the vertical connection. We, brothers and sisters, we need, we desperately need the love of God in our hearts toward one another. Now, you will know, and I know, that the Lord Jesus Christ came back to this subject on many occasions in his ministry. I think, for example, of uh, John chapter 13. Uh, you probably know what's there. The Lord Jesus washed their feet. He washed feet. And having done that, he said to them, Do you know what I've done? I've given you an example. In other words, you see me washing their feet. That's an example for you and for me as to what we must do. Not literally, uh, necessarily wash someone's feet, but serve them in love. Uh, Care for one another. He says, I've given you an example. And before that chapter finishes, he adds a commandment. So we have his example, and we also have a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. And he says, as I have loved you, love one another. You must do this. You love one another. And if you, if you think about our Lord's teaching, even as early as the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end of Matthew chapter 5, he comes and he says to them, and love your enemies. Now he's not... To- This is not addressed to the British government when it's considering war. It's not addressed to judges when it's considering civil crimes. It's addressed to the disciples. And he's saying within the church, maybe it's unthinkable that we might have enemies in the church. And it ought not to be the case. But he said, if you have an enemy among you, and he was obviously speaking in the time when Israel was there, he's Love your enemies. And why? You must be like your Father in heaven. He loves his enemies. Astonishing, uh, astonishing things from our Lord. And uh, when we read the, as an aside really, when we read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we must always bear in mind the context in which it was spoken. And uh, for many have gone astray in interpreting that. So, um, this is the great the great commandment, the second great commandment, the new commandment of our Lord. And so the Bible often, we've sung about it this morning, the Bible often speaks to us of the love of God for us. And it often tells us, and that same love must be in us towards him, yes, and towards one another. Now with with that said, I'd like to draw your attention to one or two things in Matthew 18. 
If you have your Bibles open, that's great, or you can just listen. In Matthew 18, what we have essentially is more instruction from Christ about brotherly love. That's what, it, that's what it's about. Now, if you read the chapter, you'll see that our Lord knew and detected that all was not right in his disciples. Did you notice that when we read it? Look at verse 1. What a question. What a question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, why do you think they were asking that? Were they hoping that the Lord Jesus was going to point to one of their brothers? Say, I think he'll be the greatest. They were interested in themselves. It was a selfish question. It was a proud question. What was really in their minds was, am I going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then if you look at our Lord's teaching, we'll come back. If you look at our Lord's teaching later in this chapter, it's verse 10, he says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, why did our Lord say that? Our Lord said that because he could read their hearts and he knew the sinful tendency that we have to despise those who we consider to be less than ourselves. This is what we are like sometimes, human nature. And the Lord could see that in his disciples. He could see their tendency. I would like to be the greatest and I despise these little ones. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? He brought a little child and placed this little child in the middle of them. This is a living object lesson. Well, in those days, children, in those days, little children were the least important in the house. Not sure if that's true today, but this was the, the least, the one that you might despise. Pfft, who wants a little child? But the Lord says, take heed. He's giving them a lesson. Do not despise one of these little ones. And then, what about Peter's question? It's in verse 21. What a question. How many times must I forgive my brother? I... Now, Peter answers it himself, doesn't he? He says, Lord, I think seven times would be quite enough. And I'm sure Peter expected a pat on the back. Well done, Peter. Forgive him seven times. Our Lord says, no, Peter, no. Seventy times seven. In other words, it's never, the work of forgiving one another is never finished. You can't get to the point where you say, I've forgiven him 25 times. That's enough. It's over. He said, no, you can't do that. And our Lord teaches. Uh, he's teaching um, his disciples. Um, he's addressing their, their need, their spiritual need. He's addressing their sinfulness and their weakness. And I want you to notice, um, well, I think it's three things, but there may be more points on the other page. But I think I want you to notice these things, um, what our Lord positively teaches. The first thing he positively teaches is for to have a humble heart. Have a humble heart. This is where he begins. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, and what? And become as little children, 
you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? saying, What you require um, fundamentally is humility. Humility. Now, the the little child is given to them as an object. Uh, Consider yourselves like that. You're not the most important uh, person. As one of my friends used to say, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. But you know, hidden in this verse, hidden in these first few verses, the Lord goes on to speak about the one who is the least. uh, Sorry, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 4, whoever, now who do you think he's speaking about? Whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now you might take that as a general invitation. If you humble yourself, no, I don't think so. I think he's in a veiled way. He's setting forward himself. Who humbled himself ever like Christ? Well, you know this. He humbled himself even to the death of a cross. That's what he did. He humbled himself. And he is, as we're thinking about this, we're thinking about the vertical line What we see in our God and in Christ, there is a vertical connection. It is desirable that we find the same in ourselves. So the first thing our Lord Jesus talks to them about, briefly, is humbling ourselves. And then he goes on, and in the next stage of his teaching, he speaks about caring for the little ones. He uses all sorts of language. He says, uh, woe betide you if you stumble one of these little ones. What a terrible thing it is if we uh, cause one of the little ones of Christ to sin. Our Lord has strong words for this, frightening words. Woe betide us if we cause a little one of that belongs to him to fall into sin to stumble on the way to heaven. He says, take heed, I've read this already, verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. And he speaks about himself. He says, the Son of Man came to save the lost. That's his mission. He came to save them, not to see them stumbled and destroyed. And he says, this is also the heart of God the Father in heaven, verse 14. It is not the will of your Father that one of these little ones should perish. Not one of them. And all the time, what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking about himself and he's speaking about the Father and he's appealing to them uh, on on that basis. What you find in God covered Uh, to create a nurture in yourselves. He speaks about receiving them. What does he mean when he says receive them? He means take them as your brothers and sisters. Take them as your kin. Welcome them. Love them. Support them. Encourage them. And so on and so forth. You know. Do not stumble them. Do not cause them to sin. And then... Our Lord hasn't finished. In verse 15 of our chapter, he moves on to talk about what happens when your brother sins against you. What do you do 
when your brother sins against you. Now, our Lord has already spoken about this the other way round. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you bring your uh, your offering, your gift to the altar, and when you're at the altar, you suddenly remember that you've offended your brother, you've sinned against your brother. My brother has something against me. Jesus says, leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to your brother. And the word reconciled is really important. What is he talking about? The ultimate purpose of this passage is the recovery, the restoration of uh, unity in, in love, of loving relationships. He's really um, showing them how not to let offences between brothers get in the way of your um, of brotherly love. So he says to them, he says, if your brother sins against you, first go and see him alone. Well, what's he saying? Go and see him privately. Now, that is wonderful. Because when you go and speak to a brother privately, it means you're protecting him. You don't want other people to know that he's done something bad. But you're also protecting yourself. Because the alternative is to go and slander, gossip, and talebear, which would be sin on your part. The Lord in Proverbs 6, you can go and read it, he hates the talebearer. He hates those who spread discord among the brethren. You see, all the time our Lord is, is saying, I want your relationships, when they're broken, to be healed. I want them to be healed. And he goes on. He says, if he won't hear you on that private occasion, take two more. And again, you notice, really, it's private. You restrict it. Bring two more. They, they are there to establish the truth, to establish the word. And only if all else fails, you take it to the church. And the, the outcome is dreadful. You see the, the alternatives put before us. Either the person is now a Gentile and a tax collector, either the person is out or he's reconciled to you and he's your brother. I don't think in this passage the Lord has much room for the idea that we can rub along together when we hate one another. There's no room here for, you know, uh, Bill to be sitting, I don't know if there's a Bill here, but anyway, sorry Bill, but Bill to be sitting here, and Joe to be sitting there, and they never speak because they fell out some time ago. That's not what our Lord has in mind. Be reconciled so that the love of God in him can be found in and among you. And in order to drive that home, our Lord tells the parable or the story of the unforgiving servant. You know, this morning we prayed, didn't we? Forgive us our sins. And we didn't stop there. As we forgive those who sin against us. And the Lord tells this gripping story of the unforgiving servant. Did you notice? The man he's talking about owed a massive amount of money. What a massive offence this man was to his master, his king. He owed so much that he, his wife, his children, all his property had to be sold. 
and he would be in prison until he'd paid the debt. It was, in other words, basically, it was an impossibly high debt. He could never get out of that debt. And and the, the man, he falls down before his master and he pleads for what? For pity, for compassion, for mercy. He's pleading for love. The outworking of love. He says, have pity on me. He actually says, I will pay all. Well, that was, I think, an empty promise. But how could he ever pay all? And he was forgiven. He was forgiven. But the Lord hasn't finished. He says, and there was another servant who owed him a few pennies. He owed him a very small amount. And what did he do? He took him by the throat. He wouldn't forgive him. He said, you pay me all. And he put him uh, in prison until he'd paid him. And, and our Lord is painting a picture of an unforgiving Christian, if there is such a thing. This is what a Christian is like when he doesn't forgive his brother or he doesn't love his brother. Right? The debt that God has cancelled for us is massive. When you forgive someone, you cancel the debt. You you remove all memory of it. You get rid of it. You do not seek to punish the sinner. You do not seek to avenge yourself on him. What you do is you receive him back as a brother. That's what forgiveness is. The offense, the barrier has gone. You are brothers. You are united again. He says... um, The Christian who can't do that to his brother is just like that when God has forgiven the massive weight of a life, a lifetime of sin in his sight. And what does our brother do against us in the worst scenario? What's the worst thing? Some of the offenses that Jesus had in mind were quite serious. Read the history of the church. Read through the Bible. Look at the way brothers have offended one another. Committed adultery with a man's wife. Stolen his property. Lied about him in court. And so on and so forth. Whatever it is. But that is nothing compared. That is small compared with what God has forgiven you. He says to his disciples. It's small. Let me close this morning in this way. Do you know. uh, First of all in conclusion. Do you know that God is glorified in the church when the church is filled with love. God is glorified in the church when the church is filled with love. I wonder if, like me, you have read John chapter 17 many times and not noticed many things. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for us. He's prayed for his disciples. He's prayed for those who will follow him in the ministry. And then he prays for us. And he says this, And the glory which you gave me, Father, I have given them. It's amazing. The glory, Jesus says to his Father, he says, The glory which you've given me, I have given them. That they may be one, just as we are one. There's more in this verse than I can uh, tell you this morning. But what, what Jesus is touching on is this. 
that part of our glory, in one sense, the essence of our glory, is the oneness of brotherly love. It's the unity of the body of Christ, which is part of our glory. And um, at the same time, at the same time, he says that God is glorified in the church by this love, by this unity. And uh, you can see that in John 17. That's his prayer. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, let the love of Christ fill us. Be rooted and grounded in love. He says, you can't, you can't measure the breadth, the height, the length, the depth. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. But let us be filled with the love of Christ. And he says, that, let me read it to you. It's worth reading one verse. Listen. He says, now, this is the doxology at the end of Paul's praises, now to him who is able to do, exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And I wonder whether, as we think about these things, we say it's impossible. How can we ever do that? I heard a sermon once. The preacher said, it's easy to explain love. It's hard to do it. Easy to explain, but hard to do. He says, look, he says, he is able to do above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's the Holy Spirit. But he says, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen.